1: Your the-
2: <laughs> Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to today's Monday breakfast and choosing us to start your week with. That's great it's great to have you. Hope that you managed to enjoy the sunshine this weekend. There was quite a lot of it. I was certainly out and about as much as I could within um, the restrictions, of course, Um, and the Merry Creek looked incredibly lovely this weekend so I had some nice walks and I also caught up with Judith, our lovely Judith Peppard who used to be on the Monday Breakfast Show with us and is now on Listening Notes and you can catch that on Mondays at 2pm on 3CR. So. This afternoon, you can tune in and listen to lovely Judith Show. But as for this morning, we are going to be bringing you a full range of topics today. So at around 7.15, we have Paddy talking to Nick Shumi from Physical Disability Australia about their new Youth Alliance Initiative And then at around 7.30am, Claudia brings us a fascinating discussion with historian Jay Hay, who's just released a new book about 19th century Victorian footballer Albert Pompey Austin. And at around 8am, Elle rounds the show off by revisiting an interview on the issues of diversity in the Australian media with journalist and RMIT associate professor Janak Rogers. So we are really going to dive in quite quickly so that we can get the show on the road, but over the weekend while I was trying to get as much sun as possible, and I was in my garden, because I'm very lucky to have a, a small garden here, and I was listening to PBS, The Gospel Show, and. It was just a fantastic variety of songs, and whether you're into gospel or not, it just makes you feel good. And while I was having a listen and I was having my own little search for some more songs, I came across two sisters from Melbourne who have just released an album inspired by life in isolation. So their new album is called Sunday, The Gospel According to ISO which has been, yes, inspired by the ongoing pandemic lockdown in Melbourne. So these gospel singers, Vika and Linda Ball, decided that they needed to keep singing in ISO. And so on social media, they began live streaming some gospel sessions from their homes on Sundays, just to stay in touch with their fans and to to ensure that they kept their own singing up and that they could round off the week happy. And so Sunday, Sing Song was born, which has led to their new album, The Sund- Sunday, The Gospel According to Iso. So Vikra and Linda's love of gospel began while attending church with their mother and listening to the Tongong Choir, as well as exploring their dad's collection of records. So they have a really very close personal relationship with Gospel and with the Tongon Choir in Melbourne. And the, this album in particular is a collection of existing gospel songs that have been written and performed in times of pandemics or epidemics. The song we're going to play today, just to start the show off, is called Memphis Flu. It's a 1930s gospel song about a flu pandemic in Memphis. It was first recorded by Elder Curry and Congregation, and it's believed to have been inspired by the 1919 Spanish flu, though it does reference the 1929 flu season in Memphis, um, which may have actually been the worst in the American South since the Spanish flu. Elder Curry was a singer. Preacher, a guitar player, an incredibly talented musician, and some say that Memphis Flu can lay claim to being the first rock and roll record ever made. So it's no wonder that Vika and Linda were inspired by this song as well as so many others that make it onto the album. But I thought to change things up a little bit, it would be quite fun to listen to a little bit of Elder Corrie's version. Of Memphis flu and then we'll hear Vika and Linda with their rendition of Memphis flu as well and then after that we're gonna get straight into the interviews and we're gonna have a cracking show and so here we go here is Elder Curry's Memphis flu That was Elder Curry's version, the original and potentially the first ever rock and roll record ever made inspired by Flu. And here is Melbourne's own Vika and Linda's rendition from their album Sunday, The Gospel According to Iso.
3: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Gather round people, let me tell you a story. An eight-year-old story of power and pride. British Lord Rusty and Vincent Lingari were opposite men on opposite sides. Vesty was fat With money and muscle Beef was his business Broad was his door Vincent was lean And spoke very little He had no bank balance Her debt was his floor From little things Big things grow From little things My name is Milton Tell the land to me The land right My name is Milton Lindyari
4: Tell the land belongs to me Tell the land the land, the land right
3: Lingari Commander Pampunta we are We are vested to Peru Cordos, Uncany Vincent, Manny Mono Dallas, Um Kunjiki Jungle, from, from Love Full of of sand That was the story of Vincent But this is the story of something much more how power and privilege cannot move
5: Was Electric Fields performing From Little Things, Big Things Grow? And you've been listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Now we're going to hear from Nick Shumi from Physical Disability Australia about a great opportunity for young people living with physical disability to get involved and stay connected. Nick is a passionate advocate and a member of the Board for Physical Disability Australia. And I started off by asking him what Physical Disability Australia does and about their new Youth Alliance Initiative.
6: Um, So I'm the representative from South Australia. Um, We have, it's a national peak body, um, which we have representatives all across Australia um, of people that live with physical disabilities to advocate for disability rights and so specifically around physical disability needs. And um, my background um, as a certified youth worker um, has always, always been passionate about youth and disability issues that's always sort of what I've worked with and um, PDA and Physical Disability Australia is really wanting to sort of um, hear from young people with disabilities themselves um, about uh, you know what it's like living with a physical disability as a young person what, what a young person deems to be important so the way that we're doing that is is—is one of our projects is the um, PDA Youth Alliance um, so it's a, a way for young people with physical disabilities to sort of come together and sort of um meet other pe- uh, like minded people and sort of really find their voice in terms of advocacy and 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 you know to learn what their rights are and things so in terms of the way that we've been doing that is all online um obviously everything online is online at the moment i mean we're <laughs> even doing this this um interview online um so that's just what we're we're working with at the moment so and cuz we're looking for young people across australia to sort of come together and it's really up to them what they want to do with the space, I guess, like um, it's at such early stages that I hope that the young people that come on board. And so we have um, fortnightly catch-ups that we do online on Zoom, kind of like how we're doing this interview now. And it's really whatever they want it to be, you know, it's really started off as just a sort of a get to know you, have a chat type thing about what's going on in life and, you know, keeping that engagement going. Um, Obviously, as we know, with what's been happening in the world. Um, You know, it's been quite socially isolating for everyone, um, especially people with disabilities. And uh, that's a way that we can sort of band together and sort of have a chat.
5: Yeah, definitely. Could you tell us about any of these online events coming up?
6: yeah so we we just hold um weekly um sorry fortnightly catch ups uh, which you can um you can register on online on all of our social media platforms of physical disability australia um so we have them every tuesday afternoon uh, um obviously depending on time differences it's around four thirty five o'clock on a on a, every second tuesday um so people can register for every single one um when they like to come and just have a chat with us. One of the major things that we're working on at the moment, as a way of, um, you know, like I said, we're only very, very um, early, early stages, and I'm, I'm really hoping that the young people themselves can sort of drive what what direction they would like to take it in. Um, but one of the things we're working on at the moment to get more people involved is um, actually producing a bit of a, a, a media project in terms of an online video, um, some online videos um showcasing the people that are involved um as young people with disabilities about what's important to them so there'll be sort of really short and um hopefully funny um um online videos of of you know, we're going to get our young people to film themselves about important issues that they're wanting to to discuss and and put out to the community, and um and we'll put them together nicely and uh, and use them as, as sort of online tools as a way to engage with people about what's important to us as young people with disabilities.
5: Fantastic, yeah, it's good to see the leadership coming from the from the younger people. Uh, one other question I wanted to ask you was, um, how has COVID and the public health restrictions affected differently maybe people living with physical disability?
6: Well, I think it's a really interesting question. I I mean, um, certainly not all people, but um, a lot of people um, with disabilities in general could be seen as, um, you know, fairly socially isolated in some ways. And obviously, um, now that everyone is a bit socially isolated (laughs) through all this, obviously the people that have already started to have in in regular um, times already been a little bit socially isolated obviously um, more so um but what i think is really interesting that sort of happened from all this is that sort of the online component has had to happen in terms of um we've had no choice but to do things online so in terms of um i just think of one example or in terms of employment um in terms of um Um, employment in terms of people with um, disabilities Um, so that that online sort of platform has always been in the little bit too hard basket as an option to allow someone to work um, somewhere and potentially remotely because of their access needs or whatever it is. Now we've had to do that so I actually see that as a real positive out of this if there is one um, that we've all had to sort of jump on to online and and sort of make it work that I'm really um, excited that you know that's now become the norm and will eventually um you know by rights give people more options to um pursue that ongoing and not have that you know say if somebody physically couldn't um work in a place because it had not very good access or whatever that that you know that would exclude them from that role or whatever which does happen Mm -hmm. and where we can obviously you do that online so i'm really hopeful that um I mean, there is no no such thing as going back to normal from this, I believe, yeah, but, I think so <laughs> uh, but um but I think now that we've got all of this in place and we' we've had to do it so well um that that's something that will hang around and, and won't be as much of a barrier as it once was, if that makes sense, yeah, definitely,
5: and so it, so you reckon the zoom the online aspect of the youth alliance will continue, but say as restrictions get lowered, do you think that the youth alliance will um Uh, you'll have some gatherings in in person and stuff like that?
6: We we hope for that. I mean, um, we've just um, secured some funding um, from Physical Disability Australia to do the media project, like I discussed. Um, But we definitely hope to um, get together um, as a collective at some stage, if we can. But obviously, considering we've got um, people from all sort of um, angles of, of Australia that Obviously, there's a fair bit of cost that is involved with that, but we hope to definitely do some things in person as well. Um, Because, I mean, like I said, Zoom is great to, to sort of connect with people and you can physically see people and have a chat with them. Like all the people that have been coming from when we started, I haven't actually met before other than on Zoom. So it'd be nice to do something in person as well.
5: Yeah, definitely. And there's more options um, in person to have like a, like live music and stuff like that. So it is cool to have those kind of events. Um, do you want to give out the Facebook and the um, website details for getting involved with Physical Disability Australia?
6: Yeah, so every, everything is, is linked to um, Physical Disability Australia. So you can just search on all the platforms for that. We do have um, some um, some groups that are linked to those, which is the um, Physical Disability Australia Youth Alliance. So, if you search on any of the, on the on the online platforms, you better find how to register to be involved. So, if you're a, a young person with physical disability that um, is age between eighteen to thirty, um, definitely look us up and uh, come to a come to a meet up and have a chat with us. It'll be great.
5: That was Nick Shumi from Physical Disability Australia telling us about how you can get involved with our Youth Alliance initiative. And it is so important that we find new ways to connect with our communities when we are physically distanced during the COVID pandemic. So we'll post those details on our Monday Breakfast Facebook page.
0: Good morning, 3CR Monday Breakfast listeners. Are you a footy fan frustrated that we're not going to be seeing live games in Melbourne? Well, I can understand that things are very different this year. But while we have to be satisfied watching matches played interstate, it doesn't change Victoria's status as the home of AFL and the place where the game began. This morning, I'm going to be bringing you a story about the origins of Aussie rules football. We'll be talking to Roy Hay. He's an historian who has dedicated the last 40 years to understanding how football developed in Australia and particularly the role played by Indigenous Australians. He's authored several books, including The Revolutionary Aboriginal People and Australian Football in the 19th Century, which explored the popular link between the traditional Indigenous game of man group and Australian rules. More on that later. He spoke to me a few days ago about his latest book, looking at the life of an unknown footballer from the 19th century, Albert Pompey Austin. And I bet there's not many people out there that have heard of him, but hopefully after you listen this morning, you'll be intrigued to know more. And a warning to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this segment contains references to persons who are deceased. Welcome, and thank you so much for sharing your new book, Albert Pompey Austin, A Man Between Two Worlds. Now, it's a fascinating book, but before we get into the nitty gritty, can you tell us how a man from Scotland has come to be involved with the writing of a story about an Aboriginal athlete in mid 19th century colonial Australia?
4: Well, I am a sports nut, I suppose, and for years I've been doing uh, teaching at Deakin University, retired for about 20 years now. Um, and I've been interested in the code with which I grew up, soccer, um, football to the rest of the world, but soccer to Australia. And for years, I was involved with the migrant communities in, in Geelong um, as a part-time journalist. And uh, I spent a lot of time on the the social history of Australia since the Second World War through the migrant community. When I retired, um, I got interested in where the codes of football came from and the origins of football codes, particularly in Australia, which I think had something to teach the rest of the world about their origin myths and uh, legends. Um, and of course. That then raised the question, what part did indigenous people play in the origins of the game? And uh, this was one of those historical puzzles uh, in which you find um, things that people believe which may or may not be true. And of course, being a boring empirical historian, I get stuck into this to find out what is the evidence that bears on the origin story uh, and of course it's gone through multiple phases In ori- originally it was supposed to be an Irish game uh, and then it was an English game and then it was an Australian game and then it was an Aboriginal game and of course I would I really would love to believe that there was a strong Aboriginal influence on the origins of the game. But unfortunately, there really is no substantive evidence for that. And after reaching this conclusion, I then said to myself, well, why should Indigenous people believe that they have this um, enormous Um, almost visceral connection with the game if we didn't borrow the game from them. And lo and behold, you can find in the middle of the 19th century and from then onwards, that there is a huge amount of evidence about Indigenous people um, seeing the white men playing their game and saying, we could do that, and forcing their way into it um, in the missions and stations which to which the remaining indigenous people were confined effectively um, and eventually um, beginning to take on the white men at their own game uh, in these remote parts of the state of victoria, and to me, this was a fascinating story in its own right, and secondly it did. Uh, help to explain why Indigenous people today might have a a real story to tell about their influence um, from the 19th century onwards. And out of that comes some heroic figures, one of whom is Albert Pompey Austin, Purn Yariwari, an Indigenous man who saw the white men playing their stupid game and said, I can do that and forced his way into it. And he's the only Indigenous player to play at the very top level in Victoria uh, in the 19th century. And since then, you'd be probably amazed to know this, there are as few as 40 Victorian Indigenous people who have played at the top level since Pompey.
0: And how does that compare with the rest of Australia in terms of uh, the participation of Indigenous players in AFL
4: football? No, um, they are overrepresented. But the people who make up the big numbers in the, the game that's run by the Australian Football League today are people from the Noongar of far western, western Australia Um, from the Tiwi Islands, from Northern Territory, not Victorians. The Victorians are still uh, underrepresented, whereas Indigenous people from the rest of Australia are overrepresented.
0: Well, we might come to the reasons for that a bit later when we talk about uh, the historical context of Pompey's life. But let's just get a... a a better grip on who he was um your book starts with a fascinating uh scene where uh he's playing for geelong in geelong uh, and it's a game between carlton and geelong can you uh take us through that moment that you describe? and the i third... just uh, should step in and say it was 1872 this uh game
4: and carlton were the top team of the 1871 season didn't have an official league or anything like that but they were regarded as the best team going around and so for the first game in 1872 they're down to come to geelong um to play geelong which is always competitive um as a provincial side um and they really feel that they're going to win this game. But there are two problems, two individuals who might change the balance of things. One of them is the very well-known Tommy Wills, uh, Thomas Wentworth Wills, who was the man who wrote that letter to Bell's life suggesting that we form a football game of our own to keep the cricketers fit in the winter. He was the superstar of Australian cricket in those days, having come back from rugby school in England and helped Victoria beat New South Wales at cricket for the very first time. But he was also a footballer and played for the Melbourne Club, he played for the Richmond Club, um, and he played in Geelong. And so uh Carlton, I think, would have regarded the... Strongest opposition coming from uh, Tommy Wills and his two brothers, Horace and Edgar. And Geelong also have a black player uh, in the side for the very first time and that is Pompey Austin. Now, who was Pompey Austin? He was a hurdler. He was a pedestrian, as they called athletes in those days. He'd been winning races all over Western Victoria, Um, and Geelong wanted him because he would add uh, speed and pizzazz to uh, the the game. So in my story, um, I think I set it up so that Carleton are determined uh to deal with the two um stars who might upset their chances of victory well Tommy Wills being Tommy Wills doesn't turn up so somebody else has to become the captain Pompey on the other hand who's playing without boots um watches the beginning of the game. The ball gets disappeared into a rack of bodies and doesn't come out for a while. When it does come out in his direction, he bends down to pick it up, whereupon one of the current Thugs absolutely poleaxes him. And so in that instant, this man has to think, um, I could get hurt in this game. It might prevent me from maintaining my livelihood which comes from my athletics pursuits so quite sensibly he stays clear of the battle and of course is regarded as having very little influence on the game just being a source of fun rather than competitiveness but in those circumstances it's perfectly understandable um and so that's the only chance he gets to play at the top level in the 19th century he goes back to Framlingham and plays regularly there he plays in Ballarat he plays in Cobden um, but he never gets a chance at top level in the 19th century at all and nobody else from an indigenous background does either there's a fella called Dick Rowan who's invited down from Corrinderk, the other side of Melbourne, where there's an uh, another Aboriginal station, invited down to play with South Melbourne, does very well for them, but the Board for the Protection of Aborigines say, no, he's not being allowed to play, because if he gets permission to play, they'll all want to play. And of course, you cannot have that, you know, because if your Aboriginal people get mixed up with white men, um, they'll get ideas above their station. They will start um, becoming unruly and ungovernable and they won't die out quickly, um, like many people expected them uh, to do so. Pompey is unique in that respect. He's the only guy that plays at the top level in Victoria in the 19th century. On the other hand, I mean, they did continue to play cricket in the Mission, but then the the cricket, for a whole variety of reasons, um, ceases to be their main sporting focus, and they become involved particularly in two other sports, boxing and what was called pedestrianism, uh, athletics, before um, it, it evolved as an amateur sport. In those days, these were professional runners who, who ran for money or other prizes. And there was a whole cohort of indigenous athletes um, in the early 19th century and Pompey was one of those perhaps one of the greatest of those in the, um, the 1870s and early 1880s.
0: And you so, describe a prize that he won which was quite extraordinary given the the value it would have had at that time. I think you said 43 pounds when the average white person was earning four pounds per week. So quite an extraordinary sum of money.
4: Um, assuming that he got it all. I mean, he won every race at um, Port Ferry, um, Belfast, as it was known in those days. Um, and uh, the question, of course, which is unanswerable, was, uh, was he the creature of a, a group of European backers? Uh, this often happened where people would realise that um, young Indigenous people had enormous uh, skills and speed uh, and therefore you could use them in match races to win money um, by backing them against uh, other opposition. Um, We don't know in Pompey's case whether there was anybody behind him or whether he actually was able to uh, take that money and do what I think he did with some of it, which was to buy a racehorse um, on which he, uh, he acted as a jockey as well. This is a man of multiple talents. He's not a one-trick pony by any means. And that's another reason why I find him so intriguing and um, so important in his generation. I mean, we all lionize Tommy Wills as a cricketer and a footballer. But Pompey was just as important a figure over a whole range of sports. And that's what makes him unique.
0: You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. We're talking with historian Roy Hay about Pompey Austin, an all-round athlete and the only Indigenous person to play top-level football in Australia in the 19th century. Roy's now going to explain the talents and skills Aboriginal people had which influenced their ability to take up the game.
4: Playing white men's games is difficult. It's not simple. Uh, You've got to learn how to play the game. Uh, And Indigenous people have a whole range of skills. I mean, people talk about mangrook and the idea of jumping high to catch the ball. That was not a feature of the early form of Australian football, which was much more a ground level game. Uh, and I don't think the the jumping to get the ball was really the most important of the skills. I, I think if the, you knew anything about another game that the Aborigines played called Gori, uh, you'd realise that they had something else to contribute. Gorry consisted of, you would cut a slice out of a tree and make what was effectively a wheel and bowl it along the ground. And the people ran alongside it and fired spears at it. That was what you tried to do. Um, and so in that uh, exercise, which was something the kids did, something that adults did, you were learning the skill of deflection shooting, Right. In other words, if you wanted to hit the gory, you didn't throw the spear at the gory, you threw it in front of the gory, so that by the time the disc arrived, the spear arrived. Now, this is what you need to learn if you're killing wild animals, which are on the move. You don't throw your spear at the animal, you throw it maybe five, ten metres in front of it, so that when the spear gets there, the animal gets there. And and this is something which Indigenous children learned from the cradle upwards, um, because this is how they would obtain food supplies.
0: If you've just tuned in, we're having a fascinating conversation with Scottish-Australian historian Roy Hay. Roy's just shared with us some of the skills he believed contributed to Aboriginal people's ability to take up football in Australia 150 years ago. He's now going to talk about why the ability to adapt these skills is essential to understanding Indigenous involvement in AFL football in the 19th century.
4: Well, I I come to this over a long period of interest in um, relationships between social groups. In two very disparate ways, I was involved with societies which um, relied on an oral rather than a written uh, tradition. So when I came to Australia, um, I became involved through my interest in soccer with the migrant communities who arrived in Australia after the Second World War, um, bringing soccer with them and becoming... Uh, the the um, the dynamic force within the game, which turned it from what was just a participant sport into a mass spectator sport, drawing big crowds uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s of um, the 20th century. Um, so when I became involved with the, the other footy code, and particularly Indigenous involvement, I found that in many ways, I was um, using the skills that I had picked up in uh, these other contexts to try and explain why I thought that Indigenous people had a good claim to involvement in the game uh, in Australia in the 19th century, rather than the what I described and other people have described is this comforting myth that we borrowed the game uh, from indigenous people for which you know I'm I'm sorry I would love to be able to find that evidence but there isn't any that stands up Um, but this other story to me was Hugely inspiring. I mean, I've described this both in this book and its predecessor. That's what happened. is is really a triumph of the human spirit. People who had been subject to the most appalling uh, treatment somehow overcame all that, saw the white men, at their various activities, and said we could do that and forced their way into it. And it was because they took up the white men's sports that they got into the sports pages of the newspapers, which was virtually the only place in which Aboriginal people would be treated as human beings. Otherwise, they were part of the flora and fauna, you know? They're not recognized for their other activities at all. Whereas in in the sporting context, they are able to show as individuals and as teams that they can compete and get recognised for it, get paid for it. So that's why they had a claim uh, to the, 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 the story of the game in Australia. Not because we borrowed it from Indigenous precedents, but because Indigenous people in the early part of the 19th century forced their way into the game. And had the ability
0: to adapt the skills that
4: they had into this space. And it's not easy to do it. It's a difficult thing to do, but they managed. And the other thing about this is that this is an example, and it's only one example, Of the many ways in which indigenous people saw the white men doing various things, using technologies, doing things differently from the way they did. And what they did, they borrowed what they needed and adapted it in very uh, strange and different ways to fit their view of the world and their lifestyle rather than the way the Europeans would do it. And sometimes They got credit for this, but more often they were ignored.
0: Just coming back to the question of cultural identity, from 34 onwards in Victoria, we we have the effect of colonisation and the intermingling of white settlers with the Indigenous people. How does this impact um, their identity? You describe Pompey, in fact, it's your title for the book, A Man Between Two Worlds. Can you share a little about your understanding of this and how you came to describe him in this way?
4: It means that there is, we're all mongrels now. I I present myself to this day as a deacon mongrel. Um, In other words, I've picked up a whole range of different skills, um, knowledges and so on, which are picked up from uh, different intellectual and um, sociological and cultural tradition and mix them all up in very strange ways in order to uh, understand the world we live in. And I don't think I am unique. I think we're all mongrels now. There is no pure indigenous knowledge in the 21st century. There is no pure white knowledge in Australia in the 20th century, but we are a mixture of all these different influences that feed into the life we live uh, today. I firmly believe this in the face of those who want to divide us up and uh, run sort of identity politics and pretend that there are um, u- unique views held by groups that uh, um, are pure and clear and, and different from others. I think we, we all share a common heritage. We're all influenced by this. We are beginning to come to terms with um, the fact that Indigenous people have been around this society for, it may be 60,000 years, um, but since the late 18th century, they have been intermingled uh, with the invaders um, from Europe and other parts of the world. Um, And therefore, there is no such thing really now as pure indigenous knowledge, uh, just in the same way there is nothing um, pure about uh, European uh, knowledge in Australia.
0: I'm conscious here that as non-Aboriginal people, Roy and I are speaking in a hotly contested space. We're two educated white people talking about the Aboriginal experience. Are we perpetuating the white-dominated cultural framework upon which this country is founded by having this very conversation? And does Roy's historical analysis usurp the Aboriginal voice on the life of Pompey Austin and others who played football in the 19th century. Coming to the actual writing of the book and distinguishing, I suppose, between if one accepts that we are all a commingled society now, how do you then approach the question of agency in terms of the the telling of a, a story about an Indigenous person?
4: First of all, uh, Claudia, I must say that I am more and more conscious of my ignorance of so many things. And therefore, I can only tell things in the way that I see them. Now, on the other hand, I think what I have been able to do that hasn't been done in the same way uh, before is to pick up a source of material from uh, contemporary times, from the time when Pompey was alive, to find out how this man was seen by people who would be expected to look down upon him, uh, regard him as a bit of a freak and maybe not even not even human, um, and yet tell what he did. And out of what he did or what the white men thought he did, we can construct um, a view of an individual who was an agent in his own life. He was not a victim of um, the times. He was somebody who transcended the times. I've described this you know, many times as a triumph of the human spirit. Uh, It's something from which we can all learn. Now, what I hoped to do by writing this book was to set out what I could find from the perspectives that I adopted, knowing and uh, being certain that Indigenous people faced with this story, would want to tell it differently because of special knowledges and special information that they had, family stories, lore, um, knowledges that I don't possess. But they would find useful, I hope, what I'd been able to fill in from what were, in many ways, tainted sources, prejudiced sources, but which told you more about Pompey than the vast majority of even indigenous people um, know. So it, it's a collective effort I'm looking for. I've done my bit, and like an Iron Bevan, who used to, he was the British uh, Minister of Health who introduced the National Health Service in the United Kingdom. And his peroration always ended. That's my truth. Now you tell me yours. And this is what I've tried to do. I've given this my best shot. And now it's really up to Indigenous people to take what is now visible in knowledge, thanks to the publication of this book, and reinterpret it, revise it, overturn it, Um, from their perspective.
0: You've acknowledged um, the help from Pompey's family and the descendants that are living in Victoria. Can you tell us about your relationship with them and how you did approach the subject with
4: them and and their contribution to the book? It's very, very difficult because I came across the members of the family uh, at Framlingham Descendants there, uh, Lawrence Harradine and uh, daughter um, uh, Veronica, Um, and they had relatively little direct knowledge of Pompey Austin. They knew about the football game, Uh, they knew a little bit about his son and grandson. Who also shared the Pompey name. I mean, this is three generations of people who are called Pompey Austin, um, but they really had very little knowledge of the man himself or the things that he did. And and so I was telling them uh, things about um, this extraordinary man, um, and and the same was true of the other members of the family that I met. Many of these stories. Um We traced uh, when we were looking at this um, were a mixture of um, family lore uh, material that you can find in the the papers relating to the board for the protection of Aborigines um, and the newspaper sources that I found so The the source material was also a mongrel mixture of um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous material. People ought to know a lot more about Pompey Austin because, to me, he's one of the most significant figures in the 19th century. I know not everybody will agree with it, but given the background from which he came, he is really an extraordinary human being. But I don't think he's necessarily unique. I think his whole generation ought to be better known. I mean, if we could understand that, we might understand how people can do the most extraordinary things in absolutely appalling circumstances.
0: And that was historian Roy Hay talking about his new book, Albert Pompey Austin, A Man Between Two Worlds. If you'd like to buy a copy of the book, hop on to the website www. That's www. All one word. com and just click on the book title for 29.95 including postage and GST you can purchase uh, Roy's fascinating historical book on Albert Pompey Austin now before we leave the subject of indigenous involvement in AFL football did you know 3CR was the first media service to host the Man Grook footy show yes before it became a fixture on television, it was a radio program broadcast from 3CR studios. The show was hosted by Grant Hanson and Alan Thorpe and ran for 10 years before shifting to television in 2007. So a bit of trivia for you this morning. Now here's a soulful tune by Kokatha Chamara songman, Dave Arden. It's called I Close My Eyes.
7: Long, long time So what you've been doing Hope you're fine Hope your family's Is well